This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is art, life, and making proper measurements. In the first half, Elder Ulysses Suarez shares his BYU devotional address, Becoming a Work of Art. In the second half, Dr. Shane Reese delivers his address on the measurements we make in life. Here's Elder Suarez. At the time of this address, a member of the Presidency of the Seventy of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm certain you have already heard about Michelangelo, the Italian sculptor, an Italian we say, in Italian we say Michelangelo. Besides being a sculptor, he was a painter, a poet, an architect, and it is considered one of the foremost artists of Western civilization during the period of the Renaissance to Mannerism. He is very known as a genius for his large marble status made in his century. He was born in Italy in 1475, and he lived there most of his life and left an artistic legacy for humanity, and it is admired even today. One of his most famous sculptures is called the Pietà. This statue portrays the scene of Mary, the mother of Jesus, seated with Jesus Christ, her son, laying in her arms after having been taken down from the cross. Mary's countenance expresses profound sadness for the suffering that she experienced, and the face of Jesus expresses the suffering he had accumulated after having borne the the arduous burden of taking upon him the sins of the world and being nailed to the cross. It is a work of art that depicts the authenticity of the physical and emotional details of a scene of suffering. I had a privilege of viewing this sculpture during a visit I made in the Santos Peter's Basilica in Vatican. I was even more impressed to learn that Michelangelo used basically two main tools to accomplish his works of art, a hammer and a chisel. It is truly incredible to imagine how someone could create such an enormous and beautiful work of art from a piece of raw marble using only these two tools. Certainly, he was very talented and knew how to use the resources he had to produce such beautiful works of art. When I think about the work he produced and the result he achieved, figuratively, I think about the wonderful plan of love our Heavenly Father developed in consideration for each of us and for what he hoped we might become when he sent us here to earth. Each of us born, was born with the potential to become like our Heavenly Father. Through our experiences and by properly using our agency, we can turn our lives in the direction of God and become like Him. Or we can be distracted by the world and fail to achieve our potential as it was promised to us. Figuratively, we all have the potential to become beautiful works of art in the Lord's hands. In this sense, this is the sculpture, and he uses a hammer and a chisel to mold us through our experiences day by day. If we allow the Lord to shape us, the result will be wonderful. But without question, this world offers many distractions that can pull out our focus away from the primary reason why we are living here on this earth. 
These distractions can turn into detours in our lives that prevent us from being transformed into works of art. Let's examine how this happens, but before speaking about this process, I wish to emphasize two principles. First, you need to know that you are a chosen generation. You are preordained by the Lord to be here on earth during this period of history. The Lord reserved all of you for this time because He knew that you would be part of a group of special and strong spirits who could overcome the challenges of this era. Therefore, you are a special generation. I'm certain that you have already heard that many times, but can you see now why? Second, the enemy knows your potential and the promises made to you. He was in the presence of the Lord when this plan was presented. He knows exactly what the Lord expects for, for each of us. He doesn't have the veil of forgiveness as we do while we live upon the earth. For this reason, He works so hard to distract our attention from our primary focus, trying to draw us away from the direction of the Lord. Now going back about the process of distractions. I would like to refer to Lehi's vision about the tree of life. Remember that Lehi saw a tree whose fruit was very desirable to make one happy. He also saw a straight and narrow path alongside an iron rod that extended along the bank of a river leading to the field where the tree was located. A dense mist of darkness covered the path leading to the tree of life. Because of this mist, Several people who had started along the path to the tree of life wandered away from it and became lost. In 1 Nephi chapter 12, verse 17, Nephi explains that the mists of darkness are the temptations of the devil that blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men, leading them into broad roads where they perish and are lost. Here we find the primary distraction in our lives. Temptation. The guide of the descriptors defined temptation as a test of a person's ability to choose good instead of evil, an enticement to sin, and follow Satan instead of God. Temptation is the primary weapon that the enemy uses to distract us. According to the teachings of Nephi, temptation makes us blind, hardens our heart, and causes us to perish. Generally speaking, temptation is very subtle. It comes to us undetected and deceives us. We are unable to see the consequences of it, and consequently we may choose wrong. We become blind. We become prideful with a hardened heart, unreceptive to the will of God. The only weapon we have to avoid this distraction is to hold on the iron rod. Nephi explained this to his brothers when they asked him about the meaning of the iron rod. Nephi said, quote, And I said unto them that it was the word of God, and whose would hearken unto the word of God, and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish, neither could the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness, to lead them away to destruction. Wherefore, I, Nephi, did exhort them to give heed unto the word of the Lord. Yea, I did exhort them with all the energies of my soul and with all the faculty which I possessed, 
that they would give heed to the word of God and remember to keep his commandments always in all things. Close quote. I remember an experience that a young man <clears throat> went through during the, the years when he was in college. This young man was a good member of the church at that time. He told me that he was once invited to a costume party in the house of one of his classmates. Everyone was very excited to go to that particular party. The friend claimed that his college professors were also invited to attend it, especially some of them who were very nice and friendly towards the students. All of this seemed very inviting and secure, so the young man accepted the invitation to go to the party. When he arrived there, he realized that the atmosphere was not exactly what he had expected. There were students drinking, smoking, using drugs, and doing other horrible things in every corner of that house. He said that he became very concerned about what was happening and began to think about how he could leave that situation. The party was at a location far from his own home. He had gotten a ride with friends, and so the, he had no way to return home on his own. At that very moment, he prayed silently unto the Lord, asking for help. After some pondering, he felt that he should walk outside the house. He followed his feelings and stayed outside the house until the party ended. That decision went unnoticed by his friends, who were all involved in that atmosphere and only regrouped when he, it was time to leave. During the ride home, his friends talked about the horrible things that had happened during that party. This young man felt very uncomfortable with the whole situation. It was not easy for him to bear it, but the next day he went to the sacrament meeting and partook of the sacrament. In that moment, he felt calm, peaceful, and certain that he had made the correct decision. In that moment, he realized what it means to grasp the iron rod and not let go even in the midst of the mists of darkness. He understood clearly what Nephi taught his brothers when he said that, whose would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish, neither could the temptations and the fire darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness to lead them away to destruction. Imagine what might have happened if that young man, simply out of the shame, had not been strong enough to continue holding on to the iron rod. As a result of this and other decisions in his life, that young man married in the temple to a wonderful young woman, formed a special family, and has been very successful in his life in everything he has done. He serves faithfully in the church and seeks to be a good example to his children. It is not easy to face temptation daily. We are all exposed to an environment that is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a world that is deteriorating morally. Media and technology invite us to participate in destructive and life-shattering activities that are opposed to our beliefs and the values of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pressures from friends who do not share our principles or who share our principles but are weak in their faith push us to participate in degrading behaviors. 
And on the top of all this, we have to deal with the natural man that exists in each of us. The Guide to the Scriptures defines the natural man as a person who chooses to be influenced by the passions, desires, appetites, and senses of the flesh rather than by the promptings of the Holy Ghost. Such a person can comprehend physical things, but not spiritual things. All people are carnal or mortal because of the fall of Adam and Eve. Each person must be born again through the atonement of Jesus Christ to cease being a natural man. One year ago, Elder Paul V. Johnson, Commissioner of the Church Educational System, said the following in this same pulpit, quote, Part of our early earthly experience consists of being enticed by both good and evil, and then learning how to choose good over evil. How could we become like the Savior if we did not have agency to make those choices? By using agents to choose the right, individuals begin to put on the divine nature to pattern their lives after His. They find peace, happiness, and freedom as they make right choices. Satan will now deceive and blind men and lead them captive at His will. If He is leading people captive, doesn't that sound like He is destroying agency? The fact is, He could not destroy agency in the pre-earth life, and He cannot do it now either. If He can't destroy agents, then how could He lead us captive? He does it by enticing individuals to sin. When we sin, we subject ourselves to Him. We, in effect, give part of our agency to Him. We can't take it from us, but we can relinquish it. When individuals yield to the temptation, they become subject to the will of the devil. When, though, even though when he can't destroy or take away our agency by force, we can give it up. Close quote. There is a simple formula that President Monson taught that can help us avoid the distraction of temptation and keep us moving in the right direction. He said, you can't be right by doing wrong. You can't be wrong by doing right. President Monson's formula is simple and direct. If we exercise faith and are diligent in obeying the commandments of the Lord, we will easily find the right way to go when we face daily small choices and challenges. In that regard, President George Albert Smith taught, quote, There is a line of demarcation well defined between the Lord's territory and the devil's territory. If you will stay on the Lord's side of the line, you will be under His influence and will have no desire to do wrong. But if you cross to the devil's side of that line one inch, you are in the tempter's power, and if he is successful, you will not be able to think or even reason properly because you have lost the Spirit of the Lord." Close quote. Therefore, my dear youth, we should ask ourselves every day, are my actions placing me in the Lord's territory or the enemy's territory? I can't be right by doing wrong. I can't be wrong by doing right. So let's examine what the Prophet Mormon taught his people regarding this same topic. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. 
for everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. But whatever thing persuadeth men to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him and serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. For after this manner doth the devil work, for he persuaded no man to do good. No, not one, neither do his angels, neither do they who subject themselves unto him. Our Heavenly Father has given us the light of Christ. The light of Christ is this divine energy, power, or influence that proceeds from God through Christ and give us life and light to all things. It helps a person choose between right and wrong. This wonderful gift, in conjunction with the companionship of the Holy Ghost, should help us to determine whether our manner of living is placing us in the territories of the Lord or that of the enemy. If our behavior is good, we are being inspired by God, for everything that is good comes from God. If our behavior is bad, we are being influenced by the enemy, for he persuades men to do what is wrong. That young man from the history I told you a moment ago used these two wonderful gifts. The light of Christ helped him to identify what was right, and the Holy Ghost guided his decision about what path he should follow. These two gifts are available to those who hold onto the iron rod. Now let's imagine that for some reason we have been de deceived or confused by temptation and we ended up sinning. What should we do? If we fall into temptation and sin, we have to reconcile ourselves with God. In the language of the scriptures, this means we must repent and change. Repentance is a change of mind and heart that brings a fresh attitude towards God, oneself and life in general. Repentance implies that a person turns away from evil and turns his heart and will to God, submitting to God's commandments and desires forsaking sin. True repentance comes from a love from God and a sincere desire to obey His commandments. I like very much what Elder Neil A. Anderson taught about repentance some years ago. He said, quote, When we sin, we turn away from God. When we repent, we turn back toward God. The invitation to repent is rarely a voice of chastisement, but rather a loving appeal to turn around and to return toward God. It is the back-knowing of a loving Father and His only begotten Son to be more than we are, to reach up a higher way of life, to change, and to feel the happiness of keeping the commandments. We rejoice in the blessing of repenting and the joy of being forgiven. They become part of us, shaping the way we think and feel." Close quote. My dear young people, repentance is a wonderful gift which is available to all who desire to return to God. It is available to those who have the desire to hold unto the iron rod and allow the Lord to mold their lives into a wonderful work of art. Repentance allows the Lord to use a hammer and a chisel 
to shape our lives and make us into a beautiful work of art. We were born with the seed of divinity in our spirit because we are God's children. This seed needs to grow. It develops as we use our agency in righteousness, as we make correct decisions, as we use the light of Christ and the Holy Ghost to guide us in the decisions we make during the course of our lives. In this way, we shape our spirits so they become an admirable work of art. This process takes time. Michelangelo was 13 years old when he began his art artistic activities as an apprentice in Italy. He followed his master's teachings, and for more than 70 years of his life, he produced works of art admired around the world. Like Michelangelo, we need to understand that it is not possible to shape our lives from one day to another. Our choices shape our souls. Recognizing our dedication and perseverance, the Lord will give us what we are unable to obtain by ourselves. He will shape us with His hammer and chisel because He sees our efforts to overcome our imperfections and human weaknesses. In that regard, repentance becomes part of our daily lives. Our weekly taking of the sacrament is so important to come meekly, humbly before the Lord, acknowledging our dependence upon Him, asking Him to forgive and renew us, and promising to always remember Him. Sometimes, in our daily efforts to become more Christ-like, we find ourselves repeatedly struggling with the same difficulties. It is as we were climbing a tree-covered mountain. At times, we don't see our progress until we get closer to the top and look back from the, the high ridges. Please don't be discouraged. If you are striving and working to repent, then you are in the process of repenting, the process of changing. Elder D. Todd Christofferson stated that, quote, Overcoming bad habits often means an effort today, followed by another tomorrow, and then another, perhaps for many days, even months and years, until we achieve victory. Close quote. As we improve, we see life more clearly and feel the Holy Ghost working more strongly within us. For those who are truly repentant but seem unable to feel relief, continue keeping the commandments. I promise you, in the name of the Savior, relief will come in the timetable of the Lord. Healing also requires time. My invitation today is for all of us to allow the Lord to mold and transform our lives into our potential, to what which our Heavenly Father planned for us. Let us understand our eternal perspective and turn our lives into a beautiful work of art, which was planted by a loving Heavenly Father, who developed a plan of redemption so that we could return to His presence. I bear my sacred testimony that Jesus Christ is our Savior. He gave His life so that we might repent and change, might repent and change and change our character. I testify to you that thanks to His love, it is possible to change. It is possible to leave our weaknesses behind. It is possible to reject the temptations in our lives 
and develop the attributes of Christ if and only if we hold unto the iron rod. The Savior himself showed us the way. He gave us the perfect example and commanded that each of us become as he is. His invitation to us is that we follow him, that we imitate his example and become as he is. I bear my testimony of this truth in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is art, life, and making proper measurements. We've just heard from Elder Ulysses Suarez. After the break, we'll return with Shane Reese on the measurements we make in life. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is art, life, and making proper measurements. Next, Dr. Shane Reese, a professor of statistics, shares his address on the measurements we make in life. Upon finding out that I was going to have this opportunity to share this devotional with you today, a colleague quipped, ah, don't worry about it. It's just like hosting a big family home evening. If this suggestion by my colleague resembles anything like the Reese household family evenings, then that means that, one, most of you are sitting here against your own will. (laughs) Two, some of you will spend the entire time texting your friends about what you're going to do tonight. And three, all of you realize that once that amazing musical number was over, it's all downhill from here. Of course, the most disappointing difference between this devotional and a typical family home evening is that nobody wasn't put in charge of the refreshments. I appreciate your willingness to be here today. I pray that our Father in Heaven will bless our time together with an abundance of the Holy Ghost. I was taught once that the most important aspects of a meeting are, in order of least to most important, what the speaker has to say, what the Spirit teaches you, and most importantly, the commitments you make. The godlike changes to our patterns of living are what define our character, celestial or otherwise. That we can leave here today with an increased desire to change some aspect of our lives is my hope and prayer. A common question when meeting new people is, what do you do for a living? When I tell people that I'm a statistician, their first response is, Oh, that was the worst class I had in college. I don't even know how to appropriately respond to that comment. The second common response I get when asked about my profession is, why would anyone ever go into that field? And this is the question I get excited to answer. In fact, I get downright giddy to describe why I chose statistics as my profession. The most compelling aspect about statistics that drew me in from the start is the role that statistics plays as sort of a gatekeeper of science. We are all familiar with the pattern of learning using the scientific method, which is to first formulate a hypothesis, gather data through a scientific experimentation, and then draw conclusions based on the data that are gathered. Statistics is concerned with making proper measurements and then weighing the evidence in favor of or against the hypothesis. Once we have that evidence, we then formulate proper conclusions. This process of making proper measurements 
and then summarizing the evidence is a powerful process that has helped push science forward today. I would like to focus on the measurements we make, we must all make as part of our mortal existence and the role those measurements play as we form judgments. While there are many areas of our lives where proper measurement is important, my focus today will be about measurements we make about ourselves and measurements we make about others. Like many aspects of our mortal existence, our ability to make good measurements requires practice and the development of skills, both of which require time. I am optimistic that with some practice and skill development, we can all be better at the measurements we must inevitably make in this life. Before I discuss principles of good measurement and apply them to our measurements of ourselves and of others, I would like to share an experience my wife and I had with making measurements and some of the lessons we learned in that process. Early in my BYU career, while sitting in my office, the phone rang, and on the other line was someone I both respected and admired. He indicated that his organization, a National Football League team, had a job opportunity for me. Now, one of my passions is the development of statistical methods for sports and for human performance. So it was a job that I not only dreamed about, but it was also both professionally rewarding and financially attractive. Indeed, this was a job that I felt completely prepared for, and all the details seemed to point me in the direction of accepting the position. My wife, Wendy, and I discussed the job opportunity and felt that we should at least explore the possibility. We made all the arrangements to fly to the destination city, and after a three-day, somewhat grueling experience with high-powered executives and coaches, we returned home with far more questions than we had answers. With the offer in hand, my wife and I weighed the evidence we'd gathered over the three-day trip by creating a pros and cons list. We were meticulous about making our list. Our measurement of the pros included financial considerations, opportunities to meet new people, and job growth opportunities. Our measurement of the cons included movement away from family, the inability to teach some amazing students, and work with valued colleagues here at BYU. As the day came for us to report our decision, Wendy and I gathered at the door as we do daily and as I prepared to leave for work. We had been praying, fasting, gathering all the data we could gather, and, and here we were with a list of pros and cons that were identically long and equally compelling. It appeared to be a statistical tie. We were both exhausted by the process of deciding, and so I suggested that the optimal way to make a decision in the case of a statistical tie was, yep, you guessed it, flip a coin. While I fully expected my wife to remind me that not everything had to be decided using optimal decision theory, and that this was really one more piece of evidence suggesting that I was as nerdy as my profession suggested I was, <laughs> I was shocked to hear her say, okay. She quickly grabbed a coin from the telephone stand that's by our back door, and she flipped it. And I just as quickly grabbed the coin out of the air, and I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. None of this best of three business, one flip of the coin. Heads we go, tails we stay. She agreed, and I flipped the coin. I don't know how many of you have had those moments in your life when everything slowed way down, when everything seemed to go in slow motion, but this was one of those moments. I watched 
every flip of that coin as it went up in the air, flip, 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 and slowly made its way to the ground. With anxious eyes and nervous hearts, we watched as the coin struck the floor, then hit the back door, then rattled around in a corner near the door and came to rest directly vertical on its edge against the wall. (laughs) Now I'm a statistician and I've flipped enough coins to know that this has zero probability. (laughs) My wife and I laughed and parenthetically cried together as we realized (laughs) that we weren't going to get off that easily. We had work left to do and the Lord was not going to allow us to miss out on an important growth opportunity. We asked the potential employer for a little more time and had one of the most powerful weeks of our married lives together. As a trip to the temple and some additional fervent prayer and fasting helped us measure weightier evidence than anything that was on either of our pros or cons lists. We had a sweet and precious learning experience that the Lord had in store for us on his time scale. It is about both the Lord's measurement system and on the Lord's time scale that I would like to focus the balance of my remarks today. Perhaps the most important and difficult measurement we make in mortality is to assess where we stand as individuals. If we do not take the time to assess where we are in relationship with the Savior, we will likely find ourselves moving backwards. The prophet Alma understood the importance of having a personal interview with ourselves and taking stock of our lives. This teaching is reminiscent of the Apostle Paul teaching the Corinthians to examine yourselves. As Alma was going through towns and villages teaching the people he met, he encouraged them and us to have a personal interview with ourselves. He even helps us with some questions that we might ask, and I commend them to you today. And now behold, I ask you, my brethren of the church, have ye, been, have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received his image in your countenances? Have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Do ye exercise faith in the redemption of him who created you? Do you look forward with an eye of faith and view this mortal body raised in immortality and this corruption raised in incorruption to stand before God to be judged according to the deeds which have been done in the mortal body? The answers to these questions are among the, some of the most important you will give in your life. The answers to these questions require honest soul searching, personal pondering, sincere prayer, and a genuine relationship with the Savior. They require measurements of ourselves that allow us to take stock of where we stand so that we may make progress to become, towards becoming children of Christ. The result is spiritual rebirth, and it is one of the sweetest blessings that our Father in Heaven has granted us in mortality. Of course, the process of making measurements about ourselves is not easy. As we go through the process of making measurement about our, measurements about ourselves, a critical consideration is to be fair in our assessments. While some who try to make assessments of themselves will not hold themselves to a high enough standard, it is my experience that most are inclined to be far too tough on themselves. In our quest for perfection, we will almost certainly find that our measurements of ourselves will be found wanting. Indeed, imperfection in this life is a reality. In this regard, I am grateful for modern prophets and apostles who understand this reality and have taught us a remedy. 
President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, in his talk entitled Of Things That Matter Most, taught us that, quote, a key relationship is with ourselves. It may seem odd to think of having a relationship with ourselves, but we do. Some people can't get along with themselves. They criticize and belittle themselves all day long until they begin to hate themselves. May I suggest that you reduce the rush and take a little extra time to get to know yourself better. Walk in nature. Watch a sunrise. Enjoy God's creations. Ponder the truths of the restored gospel and find out what they mean for you personally. Learn to see yourself as Heavenly Father sees you as his precious daughter or son with divine potential, close quote. So as we make measurements of ourselves, we must be fair. In a generation that is dominated by knee-jerk reactions that can be sent around the globe in microseconds and the instantaneous measurements that are meted out through social media, we are often lured into making judgments without data. The virtual world that comes with the miracles of technology have a side effect of masking things as they really are. Elder David A. Bednar taught the importance of making measurements about ourselves in appropriate ways and not letting the snap judgments of instantaneous response social media overwhelm us when he said, quote, Please be careful of becoming so immersed and engrossed in pixels, texting, earbuds, twittering, online social networking, and potentially addictive uses of media and the internet that you fail to recognize the importance of your physical body and miss the richness of person-to-person communication. Beware of digital displays and data in many forms of computer-mediated interaction that can displace the full range of physical capacity and experience. Brothers and sisters, please understand that I am not suggesting all technology is inherently bad. It is not. Nor am I saying that we should not use its many capabilities in appropriate ways to learn, to communicate, to lift and brighten lives, and to build and strengthen the church. Of course we should, but I am raising a voice of warning that we should not squander and damage the authentic relationships by obsessing over the contrived ones." Close quote. Measurements of ourselves are more effective when based on the introspective, personal interviews suggested by the Prophet Alma, quiet pondering, and prayerful guidance of the Holy Ghost. Using these methods of measurements will allow us to make fair assessments and will reinforce the eternal truth that you are a child of a Father in Heaven who knows and loves you. Measuring ourselves requires fairness and honesty. As we move beyond our measurements of ourselves to measurement of others, we must exercise caution, as measuring others requires the additional virtue of patience. Indeed, the folly associated with making poor measurements of others gives rise to the concluding section of the Savior's Sermon on the Mount, the doctrinal foundation for discipleship in the kingdom. Matthew's recollection of the Savior's injunction on proper measurement of others is contained in chapter 7 of his record. The Savior said, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judged, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? 
thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Many interpretations of this scripture consider verse 1 in isolation of the entire section of scripture. My interpretation, however, is that verse 1 is a strong reminder that we are not to judge until we've mastered the prerequisites to do so. The next four verses are the Savior's teachings on how to make assessments of others more appropriately. In verse 2, we are taught that the quality of our measurements will dictate how we are measured. In other words, if we are harsh or unfair in the assessments of others, that same amount of harshness or unfairness will be meted or measured unto us in return. Verses 3 through 5 remind us about the importance of making assessments of ourselves before we make assessment of others. Fundamentally, the ability to make proper measurements of others requires us to first measure ourselves, remove the beam of unresolved sin through the miracle of repentance, and then, with the guidance of the Holy Ghost, make measurements. These measurements of others require a gift of the Spirit called discernment. The spiritual gift of discernment is one that we all have in varying degrees and which can be increased as much as our Father in Heaven will allow if we but seek it out. Many of us have had the embarrassing and humility-inducing experience of making a snap judgment of another individual based on physical appearance only to be completely wrong about our knee-jerk or snap judgment. Indeed, it was my young family that was on a deserted highway between Green River and Moab, Utah, late one wintry night that was rescued by a kind, generous, and caring soul who didn't look quite like the angels we typically envision. Indeed, this giant of a man wore greasy pants, a dirty flannel shirt, and had hands which were rough and scarred from a lifetime of hard work and service who literally saved my young family as he allowed us to borrow his car for the evening so my wife and I with our three young children in car seats could drive to the next town because there were no tow truck drivers available and we didn't have the money to pay them even if they were. A second mistake made by our natural man tendencies in assessing others is on the opposite end of the spectrum. An experience will serve to illustrate. As part of my work in the Young Men's Organization, I have been working through the Duty to God program. In that program, the young men are encouraged to develop a pattern of living where they learn their duty, then make a plan on how to change some aspect of their lives to fulfill that duty, and then share their experiences with each other. This process of learning, acting, and sharing is a pattern that has made a huge difference in my life as I've tried to use it myself. Recently, I was taking stock of my own life and realized that I needed to be better at taking time to make better and fairer measurements of people around me. As I began working on this goal, I expected the results to be a reminder that I shouldn't rush to judgment about people based on their appearance. However, as is often the case, I was taught in a different, unanticipated way. Steve is a friend of mine. Steve is one of those people who always has a smile on his face. One of those people who had an incredible number of friends, and one of those people who seems to have the ability to turn everything he touches into gold. He's one of those people who seems to be the best at everything and makes it look easy. 
He's completely and totally infuriating. However, because I'd had this goal to try to be patient in my measurements before rushing to judgment, I decided I would practice on Steve. As I began to observe Steve a bit more closely and learn a bit more about him, I realized that he had been struggling with some fairly serious family issues. I also found that Steve was experiencing some difficult financial woes as a result of some misplaced investments. In fact, Steve, despite appearing totally perfect on the outside, had struggles that were, in many ways, far more difficult and challenging than any I'd ever struggled with. In fact, at this moment, I was just as embarrassed by this snap judgment as I was on that lonesome highway in southern Utah that cold, wintry night. Indeed, we are given different trials at different times. Being patient and taking the time to make proper measurements of our fellow brothers and sisters before passing judgment is part of what leads us in a path of discipleship rather than other less straight and less narrow paths. In conclusion, I pray that we will be a little fairer in our measurements of ourselves and a little more patient in our measurements of others. As we hone our measurement skills, we will be more like our Savior. We will be more effective instruments in His hands, and we will understand a measure of His love for both us and for our brothers and sisters. My brothers and sisters, I know that God lives and that Jesus is the Christ. And I pray for change in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and recentering. Today's theme was art, life, and making proper measurements. With thoughts from Elder Ulysses Suarez and Dr. Shane Reese. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.